0: Today's episode is brought to you by the new Yelp for Restaurants. In July 2020, hundreds of hospitality professionals and enthusiasts at Yelp banded together to create a new team dedicated entirely to the betterment of restaurants. Check out our latest project together, the Restaurant Marketing School podcast at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash marketing school or wherever you get your podcast. Now here we go.
1: It's a little scary to be so raw and honest, but I also really wanted to show that that is part of the journey. And when people don't talk about that part, they're actually just setting up a ton of people for failure because they're not being honest about what it actually takes. And then you find people feeling like they're failures when actually the failure is part of the journey.
0: Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Who's the most important person in your restaurant? On a busy Saturday night, it's the dishwasher. Because if the dishwasher doesn't show up, you're the dishwasher. To make his job easier and our operation more efficient, we've upgraded to Dawn Professional Pot and Pan. Dawn Professional cleans 58% more pots and pans per sink using less soap and resulting in fewer changeovers. Save time and money with Dawn Professional. It's clean, upgraded. There's a gritty side to entrepreneurship that doesn't get much attention. The hardest part of ownership isn't owning the business. It's owning the choices you've made and the impact they have on you and your team. Today, we chat with multi-million dollar culinary clothing maven, Ellen Bennett. Ellen wrote a book that's one part biography and one part action plan for aspiring entrepreneurs. We've run through what the past 10 years has been like for Ellen, bringing to light what has made her and her company so successful.
1: When I set out to write the book, I really wanted to be the next book on the business bookshelf. That wasn't just like, no offense, I have many wonderful white guys in my life, <laughs> including my husband. But I felt like there was a missing moment where you could have somebody else with a different perspective, with a different background, with a different upbringing that would help people really see that there's more than one way to skin a cat. And because I'm Mexican, raised by a single mom, like just all of those things were very much stacked against me in in some ways. And I didn't go to some fancy college and I didn't have investors. And it was just like, I still did it. And so I thought it would be really great for the world to see that path and the honest journey that it took that I'm still on. And also, I love the idea of writing a memoir when I'm still in the journey to show people not like when you've IPO'd and sold your company for a billion dollars, but the eight million steps it takes before that moment to reach success or be successful.
0: What I thought was so awesome about the book is you really do open the kimono. It's like warts and all. It's the true struggle of the journey. Entrepreneurship has largely been commoditized people just want to be it, they want to call themselves that. But you really dug into the struggle. Was there any fear associated with that?
1: I mean, I think with anything, it's a little scary to be so raw and honest. But I also really wanted to show that that is part of the journey. And when people don't talk about that part, they're actually just setting up a ton of people for failure, because they're not being honest about what it actually takes. And then you find people feeling like they're failures, when actually the failure is part of the journey. And so if you quit at the failure, like you're not even halfway there. And so that's just important to highlight that. And I think a lot of people look at my world and they're like, it's all shiny and colorful, even though it's shiny and colorful up front, like I still go through really big shit storms all the time. And I still find a way to continue to be shiny and colorful. So it's not about being fake. It's just about showing that even though that's happening behind the scenes, you can still find a way to like search for your silver linings.
0: A consistent theme throughout the book is courage. And the reason I see it so clearly is because you say something right at the front end of the book that is so true and so candid. You talk about you had a vision, but you didn't have a plan. Ari from Zingerman said the same thing. He said he had this masterful vision for what the company was going to look like, what his future was going to look like. And people would always confuse it with a plan, but he had no idea how he was going to get there. Were you born with the confidence to just jump in with both feet, not knowing how you were going to get there?
1: Yeah, such a good question. I'm not sure if I was born with the confidence. I think I just had enough life scenarios where no one else was making the actions happen. And so I was just like, Okay, well, I guess I'll just try. And then you do that enough times and you survive. As I mentioned in my book, the confidence belt gets built, right? And you start putting those little notches on your life confidence belt and start thinking, well, man, if I could do that little thing, then maybe I can do the other one. And stuff like the fact that my mom would let me do our finances when I was like 13 or 14. And it wasn't like, no, you can't do that. You're not capable. You haven't been trained officially. She was just like, okay, you can help me? Great. So it was an automatic assumption that I could that made me feel like, well, I should, and I better figure it out.
0: And the vision for your business, I mean, it transcends aprons. Like you're not really in the business of aprons. Aprons is the conduit through which you share your vision with the world. What was the vision? What is the vision for Headland Bennett?
1: You know, that's so astute that you see that it's not just about aprons because it isn't. I don't know. I could be selling blankets or something, but I chose aprons. But I think more than anything, it's like the idea and the belief that you can inspire confidence in people and make them feel like they can and to kick people into action. In this case, it's action in the kitchen. In the book, it's action in life. In my life, it's like action in things that I have no idea how to do. But it's just the idea of going from an idea to action that I love. And that's like my purpose. And I enjoy doing things. I enjoy seeing it go from idea to life. And it's fucking thrilling. So yeah, if I can help people just have a little boost of confidence to make them try, it's like awesome.
0: And at least in the entrepreneurial circles I roll in, not that I'm doing much rolling in light of a global pandemic, But one of the things we talk about time and time again is like the importance and the willingness to start ugly, right? Everybody wants to start with this fine, beautiful, finished product. Yeah. One of the things you're very open about in the book is that the aprons weren't great to begin with. As a matter of fact, there was no apron company when you volunteered to make aprons. That willingness to fail and like publicly and fall flat on your face in front of colleagues and mentors. Is that a muscle that you grew over time?
1: Definitely. It doesn't get easier. You just get more comfortable with it. There's like a big picture in the book somewhere that's like you start to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And it is really just like a muscle. Nobody's born feeling like, oh, I'm invincible. This is totally fine. Or maybe you are, but good for you if you are. But every single time I hit a roadblock, it was really brutal and it was really hard, but I would walk away thinking like, damn, I survived that. Okay, how can I do this next thing? And I've got one more shot now. So I better make it a good one. And so you just kind of like, treat those failures as a staircase versus as like stacking up on your shoulders, and making yourself feel like you suck. Instead, use it as something to propel you to the next opportunity. And in so many cases, like if you're reading the book, you're like, oh my God, she should just throw in the fucking towel. Why does she? Do <laughs> and it's just like, if you don't have passion for what you're doing, then yeah, I probably would have thrown in the towel. But because there was a bigger why and reason for why I was doing it, it made it worth it for me to keep going. And it turned out to be a great decision to keep going because we've really been able to impact so many people's lives and it has so much more to do with just trying then, with an apron,
0: one of the things you talk about a lot in the book, especially when it comes to obstacles, is having the solution oriented mindset, yeah, but in order to have that, you've got to understand that you're part of the problem because then that gives you the opportunity to fix it. Talk to me about the evolution in that mindset,
1: well, even like Thomas Keller is always saying like you have to always keep learning, right? You have to always keep growing and I think that when people say they know everything there is to know, like they're screwing themselves over because they're kind of blockading any new Intel from coming in any new information and evolution. And so I've always kind of been really latched onto that idea. And I am always just willing to learn more, even if it means it's more about me and more about ways that I fucked up. And that, I guess, self-awareness or courage or whatever you call it to just like look stuff in the eye and be like, yeah, I totally fucked that one up is like so incredibly painful, but so important. And I think my coach has really helped me be able to see that and make it very objective. And even though it's emotional, when I hear it, I end up being objective with the information and then making things better I used to be such a Tonka truck about stuff. Now I'm like, okay, what's the result I'm trying to achieve? And how do I get that result versus just like, I'm gonna go do it, let's go. Like there's (laughs) a little bit more mental strategy to how I do stuff now than just doing. That like initial impulse was great and it got that started. But as I realized halfway through the book, it was not what was gonna get me to the next chapter. And I either had to adapt or like stop doing this anymore because it was becoming too difficult to handle.
0: You mentioned your coach. What role did coaching and mentorship play in your path?
1: A big one. I think that everyone in an entrepreneurial journey should have people around them, keeping them honest and straight and telling them the way it is and helping them see shit when they can't see it themselves. If you're in an environment where everyone is telling you yes or no, it's not good like you need honest people around you helping guide you. And so she was somebody that really did that for me and really opened my eyes to places where I had blind spots. And we all have blind spots. And they weren't ill-intentioned, but they were causing harm regardless. And so I needed to edit and pivot and adjust and adapt. And she helped me do that, which is great. And so If you can't afford a coach or you don't have people that you know who can coach you, it's like, it doesn't matter. Go find other entrepreneurs that are doing better than you in their career and have them help you because we've all been helped before. Therefore, you have to help other people. You just have to. It's just part of the journey as an entrepreneur.
0: And it's interesting because you see that when it comes to cooking and technique on the culinary side of hospitality, but you don't really see it anywhere else. Right. And there aren't that many chefs pulling sous chefs and CDCs into the back office and showing them the most efficient way to run their P&Ls.
1: I know. Isn't that crazy? It's like the thing that affects us the most in running a company is like never talked about. I mean, we're going so far in our organization that even our leadership team has access to coaches now. Like they all have coaches and we have spent so much time on, okay, how to have tough conversations, how to do write-ups, how to set stuff up, how to organize things effectively on the back end. So if there's a transition, you're doing it. So all parties win. Like It's a really clean situation. And again, it's the nitty gritty. It's the how to make a sausage, but it's so important for businesses. So yeah, if you don't know, ask the dumb questions, don't feel bad about it. There's so much stuff I discovered because I asked the dumb questions.
0: Well, and I think that with hard work and focus, you can become a good manager in a year, but it takes decades to become a great leader.
1: Totally, I fully agree with that.
0: One of the things I hear in your voice is this enthusiasm. And every time I've seen you, every time we've crossed paths, you've always been so enthusiastic. There's like a whole section in the book called humble enthusiasm. (laughs) Carlos Santana said, there's nothing in the world more contagious than enthusiasm. And I think like all entrepreneurs, and it becomes very apparent in the book that what fueled this company for at least the first year or two was simply enthusiasm. It certainly wasn't money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) right. (laughs) So talk to me about that in light of sales and sales process, because again, you weren't selling aprons and you managed to create more than a company. You managed to create a culture that other people wanted to be indoctrinated into.
1: Yeah, totally. So the chapter about humble enthusiasm is just how I went about like befriending tons of people in a really genuine way because I was so excited about what I was doing. And there's a difference between sharing something with people and saying, this is fantastic and you have to have it. And you're like an infomercial. And then there's another way, which is just like, you are so excited that you found this better way and you want to share it with them in the way that you want to share a good recipe. And it's more about like how you are helping them in a genuine fashion that makes it a little bit more palpable. Like everybody wants to know about the best new movie or the best new show or like where to get the coolest bread or whatever. But if you're sharing something from like a cocky vantage point, nobody really enjoys that. Like it's just obnoxious. And so you apply that to business and to sales and you share things with people that are interesting, helpful, and you are very humble about it. You're not like, I figured it all out. You're more just like, oh my God, guess what? That's a very different approach to the exact same thing. And it helped to fuel a lot of Hedley and Bennett's initial growth because I was just excited to share stuff with people and people were excited to hear what I was saying. And then they'd try on the product and they'd be like, hey, this is actually really cool. Let me tell my other friend. And then they'd get excited and they felt cool because that other person got excited about what they got excited about. And so it just kind of went street by street like that. And it's possible, right? It wasn't all digital in any way, shape or form. It was real life people connecting. And that's a beautiful old school way
0: to do business. Something I'm really excited to talk to you about. It's not covered heavily in the book, even though it isn't one of the, it's like a chart or a graph, but I think it's super relevant to this moment. And I think it's something you did really well with. I want to talk about pricing. You created a premium product and you charged a premium rate for it. It's that bistro apron is somewhere in the 60s. The full apron is somewhere around $100. And you're not apologetic about it because it costs what it costs. And you did it within an industry where everyone is incredibly apologetic. We don't charge what the food is worth. We charge what people are willing to pay. And in the end, we've hamstrung ourselves through every turn, right? That had to take courage, to walk in and say, this is what I'm doing. What was your strategy for establishing that level of value for the product?
1: So honestly, it was a lot of listening at first. It was just like observing what people had, what the need was, and then figuring out how was I gonna make it happen. And because I didn't have investors or outside capital of any kind, I didn't have the luxury to give it away. I didn't have the luxury to say, well, I'll give you the first one or whatever. I mean, I was very generous with samples and things like that. But what really helped was the quality because I was not screwing around with the quality. And when you have a product you need good quality. It's like the world thinks that marketing is going to get you success. But if you have great marketing and a shitty product, your lifetime value for a customer is going to be like zero because they're not going to come back. You bamboozled them once, they're not going to get bamboozled again. And so I think recognizing that chefs were super demanding about what they wanted and the quality, I was like, well, you guys are asking for a quality that's going to cost this much. So I just have to make it that way. And we got to work together to figure it out. And because it was such a humble beginnings kind of a thing, like, I guess nobody really, I mean, I had a lot of people be like, no, that's crazy. Tons, tons. But I educated people along the way. I didn't just enforce it. Instead, I was like, so I'm making them in LA, I'm using Japanese denim, here's the fabric, the webbing is awesome because it's super sturdy on the neck, it's not gonna fall apart. And then people would be like, oh, cool, all right, that makes sense, okay, that's valuable, all right, I'll pay for that. And that helped a lot. So not imposing ideas on people, instead talking about it with them and like collaborating on it. I also collaborated on a ton of stuff at the beginning with chefs where I'd be like, well, what do you think? well, what do you think? And what do you think about this? And how about that? And so they kind of helped pave the way for me and what I was going to do anyway. So it was very like focus group style versus here's what I'm offering, come and buy it.
0: That had to take a thick skin because we've all worked with chefs. We've all worked in this industry for quite some time. The resilience and the grit that it must have taken to iterate and iterate and iterate, I can imagine that it was quite a process. Yeah. What did you do when two people you really respected had different opinions on how it should be constructed? Because eventually you did end up with one body, one model.
1: That's such a good question. It took a long time. And you'll find that in life and in business and whatever, it takes a while to have the backbone to make your own, to draw your own conclusion, right? For a long time, I'd be like, well, Thomas said this and... This Simarusti said that. So I should really do that because they're famous and important people. And eventually, you just have to draw your own conclusions. And so I think after several years of trying to make all people happy, I realized that was not scalable. We shouldn't have 20 different styles. We should have the best style and do the best stuff. So I took all these different styles and kind of like jammed them together into a set of great patterns that worked for us. But it took years and it took years of being comfortable finally with people saying no or with people saying, I don't like it. And as somebody that, as I like to say, I love to dance and I wanna dance in everyone's wedding. Like I wanna be friends with everyone and I want everyone to like me. It's true, it's like so true. (laughs) And when they don't, it's a bummer. I'm like tremendously bummed out if somebody doesn't wanna be on the bandwagon. And I just realized like, you know what? The world is a fucking huge place. And if there's some people that don't like you, so be it. Go befriend another 500 people from somewhere else. And I started thinking about it that way and like zooming out. And that really helped. So if you just get obsessed with like one little segment of people and it's like, that person doesn't like me, the world is going to end. It's like, no, no, no. There's like a continence of people out there. Go focus on getting new people, new customers, new friends, and you're going to be fine.
0: Because that's what leadership is about, right? It's about making incredibly hard decisions that other people simply aren't willing to make.
1: Exactly. And you're never going to make everyone happy from customers to employees to across the board. And you have to proceed anyway sometimes.
0: Well, and it's your path. The book is just this series of like wins overshadowed by obstacles, catastrophes, calamities, near disasters, but like you have a consistent response to all of it. And I think it's something worth bringing up because you don't dwell in it. You do have a bias towards action, whether that action is to think about it, strategize it, and then move forward or just to immediately react in a proactive way. Was that taught to you? And if so, what does that protocol look like, right? The shit hits the fan you wipe off your face, and then what happens next?
1: Well, it's the name of the book, right? It's like dream first, details later. Like you just have to kind of strike a balance of dreaming first constantly. And even if it looks like the world is ending, you have to dream up, how do you make it so the world isn't ending? And like, yeah, gotta survive that one thing and move to the next one. And so we all have innate desire to survive. We're not just like laying there on the ground, waiting for life to destroy us most of the time. We are like willing to keep fighting for life. So I just always constantly remind myself of that. I'm like, okay, that happened. What am I going to do about it? Who's driving the car? You are. I've used that metaphor a lot in the book of just like you are the driver of your life car. And it's true. You are responsible for what happens in your future. So like, don't forget that. Don't be putting that on somebody else. Don't put it on your brother or your mother or your uncle or your dad or your parents. Really, you're going to assign all of your life responsibility to your parents and what they didn't do for you. Like, fuck you. Take a little ownership and just like figure it out. Make it work. They're not in your house anymore. Maybe they are. Maybe they're not. doesn't matter. But that's how I think about it. I'm just like every day is a new opportunity. And it might suck and it might hurt every time you fall, but like you're still here. So why are you not trying again?
0: One of the coolest things that I think you've come up with over the years are these amazing collaborations. Instead of just letting that sit out there in the ether and be this thing that no one else can touch, you walk people in the book step by step through how to create the collaborations that they want. I'm curious to know, what is your, I guess, one of your most memorable collaborations and how did it come about?
1: I think a lot of people want to do collaborations. They don't know where to start. So it was exciting for me to be able to do that, to break it down for people. And I would say the Vans collab that I broke down was very exciting. And it's been incredibly fruitful. And we're now on our fourth iteration of collab with them, which is awesome. We're an apron and kitchen gear brand and we're teaming up with Vans to do shoes for the kitchen. Like that's just fucking cool. And anybody can do it. You just like, as I break down in the book, both sides have to bring something to the table. And I think a lot of times people expect, oh, I'm working with a big brand. They're going to do everything. They're going to fund it. They're going to make it. They're going to design it. It's like, no, this is a two-way street. And in order for this to be beneficial, you have to show up and contribute far beyond what anyone is expecting. And then people are going to be like, Oh, wow, that's really cool. These guys bring value to the table. That's not just monetary, but it's their people, it's their audience, it's their ideas, creativity. That's the other phrase that I use a lot in the book. It's like, focus on what you have and not what you don't have. So if you have creativity, use that like it's going out of style. If you have money, okay, then use that too, to the benefit of a lot of people, not just the benefit of yourself. So couple of key things to take away
0: there. The path to leadership is messy. And if it's done right, and I think you've definitely done it right, it seems like it's full of apologies and perseverance. <laughs> right? Yes. It just is. Oh, like, my God. I totally fucked that up. I'm so sorry. Blah, blah, blah. And then you move forward, hopefully better. And there's a section in the book where like, you really clearly break down like, my team doesn't have what they need. And here's what's missing. There are so many times in the book that you just so clearly lay out the mistakes you made, the pitfalls to avoid. Looking back and looking internally, what are the essential elements you think that have made you a successful leader?
1: I think that I'm willing to try again all the time. I joke that I'm like a cockroach, like you can't kill me. And that (laughs) no matter what happens, I bounce back in some way or another and I'm willing to try again. And I say that a lot because the whole purpose of this book is to inspire the attitude of trying. And that at my core, I think is like my special sauce. It's the thing that I have in leaps and bounds. And it's just a never ending willingness to try. And my CFO, Noelle, who I mention a lot in the book, she's like, Ellen, you're always willing to like, look the issue in the eye. And that's why I'm still here with you because you just are willing to keep trying. So that I'd say is a really important one. And then the other one is just recognition that what worked before isn't what is the thing that's going to move you to the next place. And sometimes when you have success, You want to like sit on it. You want to be like, it's perfect. I made it. Nobody touch it. We're good here now. The world is perfect. And the truth is, life is like gravity it goes up and it goes down, and like things change and evolve, and like nothing stays flat. It either goes up or it goes down. And so I always feel like, okay, well, we're not going to go down. So we better keep evolving forward. And that means forward, that means new, different, and When you stop thinking about everything you accomplished in the past and actually focus on the future, it helps keep you on your toes because you're not just like, I did great. I'm good. I'm going to sit here. It makes you want to continue.
0: What does 2021 look like? What are your goals for the year?
1: Oh, so many goals. Honestly, one of the really big goals that we have, because everything I went through in the book to evolve the company, then COVID hit and it was like, oh, everything exploded great. Try it all over again. Right. And like make everything be good in a totally different environment. And so now 2021 is about taking everything we did in 2020 and evolving it and learning from what worked and learning from what didn't, and then just continuing to grow into like a very big new field that we're in now, which is direct to consumer. Headley and Bennett went from very restaurant focused business to a 80% online business because of COVID. And so that's like a whole new business model. That's a whole new style of working. And we have a very different team now that's much more corporate. And we have changed so many things internally because of that. That It's like I'm running a new company in some ways. So it's learning the ways of this new territory, which is direct to consumer, and how to connect with home cooks, not just professional cooks, but not lose the soul along the way, right? Like bridge the gap, but to both worlds.
0: It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, i like to give the guests an opportunity to speak to the thousands of restaurant owners and operators that are listening. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer?
1: I would say that the restaurant world and industry has some of the most resilient people I have ever met. And if we survived what happened last year, we are basically bulletproof now. Like, don't for a second feel bad about what happened. Instead, think about it as this incredible, weird, fucked up gift that we all got that level set the playing field, that threw out a bunch of stuff that was already broken that forced us all to stop and slow down and look at what was working and what wasn't working and gave you an opportunity to reset. So don't lose the reset. Don't lose this gift of trying again that we now have. And as COVID starts to come, it feels like to a close, thank God, or sort of calms down a bit. Take the name of my book, Dream First Details Later. Hopefully you read it and find that boost of enthusiasm within you to just try again because guess what we got another shot and like that's awesome
0: take it that's ellen bennett to pick up ellen's new book dream first details later click the link in the show notes if you want to tell us your story hear previous episodes or check out our other content go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.